This is The Politics Lab, a podcast that puts politics under a microscope. On this week's episode, Bill and Phil analyze the Alabama IVF court ruling as part of a broader conservative war on sex, explore the latest in Donald Trump's ongoing legal troubles, reflect on the state of the Ukraine war on the two-year anniversary of Russia's invasion, and close by asking the hard question of whether the President of the United States should be seen eating ice cream. Now let's go to the lab. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Politics Lab. My name is Phil Barker, and I'm a professor of political science at Keene State College. And I'm joined by my colleague and best friend, Dr. Bill Muck, who's a professor of political science at North Central College. Hey, Bill, how are you? I'm doing good. Welcome back. You've been you've been down in Texas, right? Exploring. That's why we didn't tape last week, because Phil was was uh, enjoying yeah. the the Longhorn State. They don't they don't have the internet in Texas, so we couldn't record. So uh, <laughs> <That's true. That's laughs> no, yeah, we went down to visit family, and uh, it was it was a nice trip. It, you know, it turns out that uh, well, I, I know that that it's it's all it's not always consistent this these days with uh, climate change stuff. But in general, February is a pretty good time to visit Texas. It was like in the 70s all week and breezy. Wow. We went to the beach. It was, you know, compared to New Hampshire, uh, Texas in February is pretty nice. That is good. Although I will say, like, you left and the Midwest got really hot. So we were literally 76 degrees yesterday. <laughs> now it is 20 today. And we had tornadoes. You never get tornadoes in the Midwest in February. But this wacky weather, like, it, it feels like spring and then it's winter and combination. So it's so you you brought the you brought some of that warmth back with you. All those weird, like abnormal weather patterns. That's just a coincidence, right? That's, yeah, there's no, there's no explanation no. for it. Yeah, no, no broader <laughs> systemic effect. Nothing there. No, yeah. <laughs> we so, uh, when we were we were there, we also rented. Uh, we rented a car, and I we rented. So when we went on, we went to Norway a, a year or so ago, and we rented an electric car. It was great. So we rented an electric car, which in Texas is a little bit of a risk. But we got uh, <laughs> uh, uh, one of the Ford Mach E's, uh, the Mustangs. Yeah. But we got a, a Shelby which apparently the only way you can get them in the United States is to rent them from Hertz. But it was a, it, first of all, it was fun driving, but all week long we had like random strangers stopping us wanting to take pictures of our car. We had like guys on motorcycles that would pull up next to us on the highway and be giving us thumbs really? up. It was like, I was a celebrity in Texas just because of the car I was driving. It was so Texas has gone green. They want these e vehicles and yeah. It's possible that they didn't realize it was an electric vehicle, and if they did, they would have they would have uh, thrown things at me at, instead. But uh, but yeah, it's it was true. kind of fun for uh, for a few days. And you were saying you got some good tex uh, uh, Tex Mex down there, right? I did, I did. Good. That's always on our list when we go back. It's always Mexican food and barbecue. Those are the things we we got to have. And so we did, uh, yeah, Mexican food several times. I had grits, shrimp and grits. I had grits multiple times. Like you got to get all those southern foods while you're while you're down there. I still don't get grits, but I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed them. <laughs> so, I, I know you can doctor them up with butter and cheese and, cheese, you know, cheddar and, grits. Yeah. Yes. Yes. It always feels like you're just trying to cover oatmeal, you know, <laughs> so, <laughs> but I'm glad, I'm glad you enjoyed it. So, so other sort of thinking about news, we'll get into our main topics, but Mitch McConnell announced that he is stepping yeah. down from his leadership position. But if I understand correctly, he's not retiring. He's still going to no. serve out his term. No. Yeah. It's uh, and he's like 82 as well. I don't, but yeah. yeah, it's yeah. What I thought was interesting is his, in his announcement, the, the reasoning behind it was that he's no longer in step with his own party, which is fascinating. Yeah. Right. I mean, basically, particularly on foreign policy, he was talking about how, you know, he's still a strong supporter of of giving aid to Ukraine. And that's not that's not the Republican line anymore, which we'll talk about later this episode. Yeah, but yeah that's that. I mean, that shows you the extent to which the Republican Party really is Donald Trump's party now. That is really something, right? Because one, our, my, you know, my initial thought would be, oh, this is entirely age-driven, and I'm sure age was a factor. Uh, but if he's suggesting that more than anything, it was that the party is in a different place from where he is, um, that really, really says something. Uh, and you're right; it, it it puts the Donald Trump conservative stamp on on all of this. Uh, and yeah, we've we've spent some time talking about that. Okay, before we dive into other big news, Alexei Navalny uh, died. You know, we, while you were also away, and um, that is a, a significant. Significant development, and uh, you know, Putin didn't release the body for a long period of time. That also feels a little sketchy as well. 
It's just really an unfortunate accident, right? Again, as right. A, a, in a long line of unfortunate accidents. But yeah, I, the, we've talked about before the boldness of of Putin, and like he's in a place where he doesn't feel at risk. He's he's the risk he yeah. feels like he the being this sort of bold about uh, uh, killing, eliminating opponents is partly how he stays in power, as opposed to a, being a threat to his power. It's it's really, uh, it's yeah, it's um, I don't it's, know. It's kind of heartbreaking to see. It, it is. And it's hard to believe and it's not hard to believe. Right. I mean, you know, it uh, uh, it, it just shouldn't happen. And, and it happens just in front of all of our faces. Right. So yeah. Navalny goes back. And, and again, that that was a decision that he made and felt strongly about. Um, he's arrested. He's detained. And then, you know, he's 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 killed later. And, and whether or not, you know, he died of his health or whether Putin actually killed him, it doesn't really matter. Right. It was right. he was put in the circumstances where that was inevitably going to happen. Um, and I think long term, you know, in the short term, this he's Putin's very effective. But in the long term, this is going to continue to alienate. You just you can't run a system like that where no free expression is, is allowed. Yeah. It well, eventually come, catches up with you. I, I come back around to like thinking big picture about how uh, at some point Putin goes right. Like whether yeah. it's old age or whatever, there's not that much time left in the grand scheme of things to the Putin yeah. era. And he's been so effective at eliminating or it, it's just going to be this disastrous power vacuum in, in Russia when so he true. when he goes as well. And so that I just yeah, that's uh for the world to try to navigate that will be a challenge as well. Although he's running a re-election is going to be in March and that's, you know, because they reset the constitution. So he'd he's already served with four terms. And so he re they had a referendum to reset the constitution and basically gets him back to zero. So he can technically serve two more six year terms. So if he wins in March, he potentially has another 12 years. So we're going to have but some uh, more time to think about this. I'm sure at the end of that 12 years, though, he will right. abide by the constitutional limits and go. Right. He's, he, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> He's probably thinking like, am, okay, do I am I going to live another twelve years? Right, this is his way of thinking about like how long am I going to live and make sure I'm still in power the whole time. It just yeah, Man. so yeah, so some wacky international stuff playing out as well. So yeah, well yeah. before we dive into, we got some really great topics today. Why don't you remind everybody how they can stay connected with us? Yeah, so you can go to thepoliticslab.com. You can find all our old episodes, and for each episode, including this one. You click on that episode and it will take you to uh, that that episode's page where we have relevant readings. And so I, I, this one, this week, there's a bunch. I, I've got, I don't know, I think four or five articles on the IVF uh, stuff and then uh, um, a, a number of articles, really interesting articles on the war in Ukraine um, and where it stands two years in. So um, all of that uh, is available at thepoliticslab.com. You know what? We just okay. So before we jump into our topic, Phil, uh, just got breaking news: the Supreme Court announced that it is going to decide whether Donald Trump is immune from prosecution. So they are taking what? the case. Oh my God! Which is is sort of stunning, right? So that means it you is. know that the appellate court case felt slam dunk that there was no way that they were going to suggest that Trump was you know immune, and, and so now that means the Supreme Court thinks that decision is not definitive and final. So they are taking it. So that means it is possible the court now says that, yep, the president is immune from any sort of criminal responsibility. I don't think they're going to go there. But most importantly, it means that the uh, the Washington, D.C. trial of Trump relating to overturning the, the presidential election is not likely to be heard. I mean, don't you think if the Supreme Court is hearing yeah. this case, this puts it everything on pause. And so we're looking at Oh boy, most likely that will be after the election or very close That's to the unreal. election at best. That is I'm shocked. Like, it, it is shocking. Yeah, I, I don't I don't know what they gain from do like why I mean that means they had to have what they have to have four justices four. that want to yeah. hear it. Like I, I just like what do you add to the decision that was handed down before? Like what oh that it's makes me <laughs> that makes me nervous that they would do it that. It does. And and the the term their term ends at, at the end of April or whatever. So I mean yeah. is this something that they'll be able to hear that quickly? Is this something that uh, I mean is, is there any chance this gets pushed to next term? Surely not, right? I wouldn't think so, but this is going through the normal process, right? It's no shadow docket or anything like that. I mean, well, yeah, I, I will have to learn more because literally just breaking now. But I am, I like you, I am stunned. I thought for sure the appellate court had had packaged this as a bow for them, where they didn't have to weigh in on this. Uh, but at least four justices said we want to weigh in on this. 
I mean, if they go, I mean, we'll talk about this more, I yeah. guess, later yeah, on. Yeah. But uh, I, it feels like if they go, if if they deviate from this, like, just sort of blanket statement that the president is not immune, like, I, it feels like that just, that, like, tosses any shred of legitimacy that the court has left. I mean, it, all the accusations that it's just a partisan thing become, uh, I don't know, I, 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 even I have tried to push back against those. But if yeah. they interfere with this to say, nope, you are immune, it, it just feels like the, the, the court legitimacy is gone. I I agree. This this feels like a landmine that they could have avoided. So the only reason they don't do that is there were four justices who said, we want to have this conversation. We want to have a real constitutional question debate about whether the president is immune from criminal responsibility. And again, we've, we've talked about this in the past, what this means, right? You know, Trump's argument is that, you know, he could do anything. And as long as he's not impeached, you know, it's 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 not something that they could be charged with. This is really extraordinary. Well, at least they're they're, at least they're uh, (laughs) originalists and understand how much the founders opposed like a tyrannical power. So I'm sure that will factor (laughs) into their decision. This this is what the founders really wanted, Phil. So, all right. Well, the only thing that could probably pull us away is is sex, Phil. We got to talk about sex, and it's not often (laughs) that we talk about sex on the podcast. Yet, you know, recent events have thrust sex and gender uh, and women's rights into the broader political discourse. Uh, The most recent conversation started in the aftermath of the Alabama Supreme court issuing a ruling on February 16th declaring that embryos created through in vitro fertilization or IVF should be considered children. The direct implication of this ruling is that those who destroy an embryo in Alabama could then be held liable for wrongful death. Uh, The decision has drawn a lot of attention, as has the Chief Justice Tom Parker, Uh, who, in his concurring opinion, relied heavily on scripture and theology. Parker has a long history of citing the Bible. In fact, he's openly criticized other judges for not sufficiently considering religion in their rulings. In his opinion, Parker wrote that, quote, human life cannot be wrongfully destroyed without incurring the wrath of a holy God. And again, this is in his legal opinion. And that, quote, destroying unborn human life, including frozen embryos, is an affront to God, unquote. Uh, The ruling has caused many to point out that this is just one of many recent efforts by conservatives to wage a war on women and on sex itself. Uh, Jill Filipovich, who is a political journalist writing about women's rights, um, argued in a Substack post this week that this decision is in line with calls for restricting birth control or efforts to rescind no-fault divorce laws. Uh, Just this week, a lot of attention was paid to a law in Missouri that says pregnant women cannot get a divorce finalized if they're pregnant. Even if the pregnant people are victim, a woman is pregnant of a domestic violence. So uh, the concerns stretch to the act of sex itself. Uh, Filipovich points to a recent tweet from the Conservative Heritage Foundation, which said, and I'm going to read this slowly, quote, conservatives have led the way to restoring sex to its true purpose and ending recreational sex and senseless use of birth control pills. Unquote. Wow, that's really something, Phil. In her article, Philip Polovich closes by stating, quote, make no mistake, they are coming for IVF, they're coming for birth control pills, and for other forms of contraception, they are coming for the very concept of recreational sex, sex for fun, unquote. Phil, wow, there's a lot. Where do you, where do you want to start with this one? <laughs> I, there's just, there, you know, there oftentimes with topics, there's so many different directions you can go. I, yeah. I jotted down, I mean, just initial thoughts as we were getting, getting ready for this, I, I wrote down a few things that sort of came to mind. One of which is, is sort of unrelated to the seriousness of this, but I couldn't help th- but think about the, the longstanding critique that, that conservatives have had that liberals legislate from the bench. And this just right, feels right. like that they are That's creating laws. They're creating yeah. ideas about what is, uh, mm. you know, what is uh, life and all of that from the bench, from these, I was going to say unelected, but this is also, this also reveals the problem with electing, uh, you know, court re- judges, which is what yeah. Alabama does. So you've elected people to these positions who may, who are therefore, you know, very political. Um, the, the other thing I think of is, is the use of the, this sort of literal interpretation of the Bible. This, you know, yes. it goes hand in hand with kind of originalism, right? This idea right. that, that there is this text and it has 
one clear meaning. Mm. It is not open to interpretation or not open to, and, and, and I just so happen to know what the proper interpretation is and what was meant by that. Um, and, and it's easy to fall back on that to like, you know, just to, to, to support whatever viewpoint you want. That's the other problem with, with using this approach with using scripture. And again, so many problems with using scripture in a legal decision. But, uh, the other problem with it, when you, when you take this approach is, you know, again, they're picking and choosing. This guy's not, not picking, you know, verses from the Bible about how, you know, usury and loaning money for interest is, is an abomination. He's not picking stuff about, you know, how it's necessary to feed the poor or any of that stuff to legislate from the bench. They've picked this very specific thing. So, um, I, you know, I, again, this is, this is all, this isn't even getting at the broader context of, of, you know, what this means about, about sex. But I, the other thing I think about from a policy standpoint is that this is, we've talked a lot uh, over the past couple of months about there's this, it, this, it seems that conservatives have this sort of black and white simplistic approach to things and that there's something comforting about that. And, and there's something to their advantage. They can, they can make these arguments in, in sort of simple terms, whereas Democrats seem more willing to engage into the, in, in the complexity of these, of these issues. But this is an example of where they've taken sort of this simplistic view of it. And, and oftentimes with policy, there are these like moral principles behind it and there's not any consideration of the sort of unintended consequences. Like what, what is, I mean, maybe right. there are intended consequences, but it feels like there, there is no thinking through what this means. Like if we go so far as to say uh, that a fertilized egg is a person, like what, what all does that actually mean? And, and I would like to think that those are unintended consequences, but that comes back to, um, the last thing I was pointing, I was uh, kind of jotted down here is I, I think, I think, uh, Filipovich is, is right here in that saying that they're coming for IVF, they're coming for birth control pills. I, at one point in the not too distant past, I think I would have said I, that might be a bit of an extreme statement, but what they're continuing to show is yeah. they are like all this stuff that, you know, I, I think if, if you, they, you know, there've been lots of attempts to defend this, to say, we're not coming after IVF. This is not, you know, this is not, uh, uh, what we're going to do, but you know, there's always this sort of aside about like, you could still do IVF if you like have two eggs that you fertilize right. instead of a whole bunch. But I, I think it is like, you know, birth control, this, this brings into question birth control. This brings into, because birth control and the way birth control works, it, it prevents the, 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 the fertilized egg from implanting planting. Um, all of that is like, again, that if, if that fertilized egg is a human being with rights, then, then, then you would have to conclude that birth control, uh, or that, you know, birth control pills are illegal. So I, I think it's not too far to say that that's what's going to happen. And, and it may not be the national leader, like Donald Trump has tried to sort of distance himself from this a little bit because he realizes it's not a winner. But you're going to have there's so many others who see this through these like, yeah. you know, moral uh, through this moral lens. And, and I think um, I think absolutely that that's where they're going with with this sort of stuff. Um, I, I I mean, that's those are just like a yeah. number of thoughts off the top of my <laughs> head. I, it's like hard to even sort of wrap my head around this because of the the nature of the ruling. Where, what do you think about all of this? Yeah, I have this just like you. I have so many things that I'm thinking about. And, and maybe the place to start is to kind of echo where you began, which is this idea of of the belief that faith should be in, infused into the political system and the law. And so, you know, when, when when you grow up and you take these civics classes, you hear about separation of church and state. That's a, sort of the founding principle of the United States, separation of, of church and state. But there's a large group, we talked about Christian nationalists, who don't believe that's to be the case. And I think as we think about this, you know, the Parker, this, uh, the chief justice for the Alabama uh, Supreme Court, he certainly doesn't believe that. He believes that this is a Christian nation and that the laws and the Constitution are infused with Christianity. And so we shouldn't shy away from that. And and that ruling suggested as much. And so then we start thinking about, okay, what does Dobbs mean? So Dobbs, the decision that overturned Roe v. Wade, many argued, okay, that's sort of just it, right? And and, and it's going to end with abortion. But I tend to, to think you're taking the right position to say like, no, there are large chunks of the conservative movement who now want to continue to move forward and have conversations about other issues. And, and, and so you knew the 
the birth control conversation was coming, um, but you didn't think that it was also going to to delve into these deeper questions about, you know, consensual sex and and sex for fun and and women's rights and all of these things. And so we're starting to see now, and no fault divorce and all of that, that th- this is seen as a package, right? And once you begin this process, you don't stop just with you know overturning Roe v. Wade. It's it's part of a broader mission to bring Christianity into the legal process. And that is sort of hard to wrap your head around because that's not where the American public is. The polling is clear. That's not where the American public is. But when you have a uh, tyranny of the minority, right, when you have a a group of uh, uh, who are in power, who don't reflect the broader views of the country, but are committed to a cause, you certainly can get a long way towards that end. Yeah. Yeah. I think about uh, the, 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 the chief justice, uh, uh, Parker is, uh, he really, he is like, uh, like a perfect example of a fundamentalist. Like I, in my intro comparative yeah. class, we talk, I talk with my students about, there's a difference between, you know, conservative Christians and fundamentalists, right? So there's, there are conservative Christians who basically the, the, the difference essentially can be summed, it's complex, but the difference can be summed up as a, a conservative Christian is someone who thinks that their religious beliefs inform their political views, right? So I, I believe, you know, I'm whatever, I'm a Catholic. And, and so I therefore am going to vote against abortion. Fundamentalists are people who think that, that religion should be the law of the land. And, and Tom, this guy, the, the Tom Parker yeah. guy, has outright said that sort of stuff. Like he's like closely affiliated with groups that are, I mean, he really is a fundamentalist. He thinks that religious law should be the law of the land, which is different from saying my religious views inform how I vote. And so it's a whole different level. And and what leads me to say that I think they are going to take the next step is, this this case is fascinating. I, I didn't read the full decision, but I, I read the the beginning of it. And the, I mean, if you don't, if you're not aware of the context of the case, I mean, what essentially happened was there is a a law on the books in Alabama that says that uh, unborn you know fetuses or do have personhood to some extent. So like if you you know if if I kill someone and they are pregnant, then I can be charged with you know a, a double yeah. homicide in that instance. And all they did was basically connect those dots because what happened in this case was in this fertility clinic, uh, somebody who wasn't supposed to be in the freezer essentially went in and picked up uh, some fertilized eggs. And like because it was so cold, they dropped them on the ground and it broke or whatever. And so people brought a suit claiming that that under the law on the books in Alabama that says that a, you know, a fertilized egg is a person that this was the the, akin to me, you know, manslaughter, killing a a pregnant woman. And so all the justices were doing essentially was saying, look, if if we take this law on the books, it says that this is a person. And if this is a person and you've destroyed that person, then you're responsible for a human death. And it, 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 it's, it is, Uh, on the surface, like bizarre, but you can see where they have convinced themselves through the logic that this is the case. But if you're just going to follow that logic, that logic has to, by default, lead to bans on birth control, bans on all sorts of other stuff too. And so that it's, it, I think that's, again, there's not a, there's no, um, this is not a sort of an empathetic view of things. This is not a, like we're, we're trying to understand what people, this is a legalistic, you know, I'm following the logic to where it takes me. And, and that, that logic is going to take, take people like Parker and the Alabama Supreme court to a place where uh, essentially all different types of birth control IVF, um, you know, is, is going to be, uh, made illegal as well. I do wonder about the how politically savvy this is, right? You're you're absolutely right. They are they are running with a strict legal interpretation. And and you were sending you sent me an article this week that was talking about like abortion and, and a, a federal ban, and that Trump and his team is going to be too smart to present that because the, the American public isn't going to want this more uh, fundamentalist interpretation uh, of law. I wonder whether it backfires, right? I mean, so the public isn't there. Uh, you know, the public wants birth control. The public wants, you know, a right to abortion, all these sort of things. How do you, how are they going to navigate that? And, you know, I will say they're they're very savvy in terms of the legal front. And I think they're uh, they're sensitive to the political arguments. But a lot of this, I think, will, will shock much of the American public. I think it even shocked Alabama. Like yeah. Alabamans were going like, what do you, we all want IVF. And, and you saw Republicans down there now scratching 
scrambling to put together some law to say, no, no, we're pro-family. We this is, you know, we're gonna protect you, we're gonna make sure IVF is okay. And, and maybe we'll have something where, like you said, you can have two embryos instead of unlimited ones. Um, but I think they suddenly realize the political implications. And I wonder, uh, it'll be a good test case to see where the country is and how significant uh, women's rights and sex and all of that are really uh, matter to voters. Yeah, what, one of the articles, I don't remember if it was that one or if it was one that you sent me, made, made a point that I thought was really interesting, which is that the the American public is with Democrats on the big picture question yes. of abortion. But when you start talking about specific policies, that's where they start to fall more in line with the Republican Party. So when they start talking about, you know, a 16 week ban or whatever, yeah. that starts to seem more appealing to um, the broad, you know, the broad electorate. And so um, I think that, you know, that's where I think you're right. Like, like that sort of thing makes sense um, to maybe some voters that there's a time limit to this. Um, yeah. But th th that's you, you have the fundamentalists who come along and make these sorts of decisions. Because, again, if you want to argue that abortion is illegal because a fertilized egg is a is is a human being, then this is where you, you, you like you have to stake your claim to these sorts of arguments. Right. But I think that you're right. When you take it that far to its logical extremes, that's when you start to lose people because you're people are like, I, this is not, you know, there's a difference right. between a woman who's, who's, you know, seven months pregnant and a, and a, and a fertilized egg in a, in a freezer somewhere. And I know we need to move on, but it's really it's going to be interesting because, it, you know, the, the Republicans are going to be careful about this. And they realize that they don't want this getting out. But the implication is if Trump wins the presidency, these are that the, his supporters will see this as the natural evolution and Trump will likely not be running for a re-election. I don't know, maybe he will be, but I mean, right. So then suddenly he is freed up to pursue these, the people around him. So this is, I mean, I, I, to your initial point, I think this is a much more of a reality uh, than we would have thought uh, two or three years ago, right? Yeah. This, Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, it, I, I, again, you said we, we should move on, but there was another article in The Atlantic that I didn't post, I didn't send to you either, that talked about how, uh, I, maybe, I don't remember if I sent this to you or not, um, but uh, that there's a book, like a 150-year-old law on the books, I think the Comstock yes. Act that made it yes. illegal to, yes. to yes. And, and and this the speculation is legislation to, uh, to, to sort of put in place abortion bans isn't, there's not enough support for it, but there are these sort of provisions that exist that they could dust off without having to yeah. legislate. And, and um, the speculation is to some extent about like how much leeway does Trump give his advisors that Trump might realize it's a losing issue, but some of the people he surrounded himself with are true believers in these uh, uh, abortion, all out abortion bans. And so it, again, you know, it wasn't uh, the Trump administration the first time around was not a particularly well-run, uh, you know, well-oiled machine. And so the yeah. extent to which the people around him have control over these things, I think, will will maybe dictate a, a lot of how that goes. You know, a, a long time ago, we, we discussed an article in Foreign Affairs by our friend Erica Chenoweth, who, who was looking at uh, authoritarianism, the relationship between authoritarianism mm -hmm. and being anti-women's rights, right? You mm -hmm. know, engaging in a war on women. And, she, and they make her and uh, I can't think of her co-author right now, but they make a, a very statistically significant argument to say that that authoritarians are targeting women. And, and they make the point that we should expect this in the United States. And mm -hmm. I think we are starting to see some of this, that wow. as the Republican Party moves in a less democratic direction, they are also targeting the rights of women. And, and uh, again, social science explains all of this, Phil. It's just, it's, you know... God. It's just not, I don't like the outcomes though. I would like, I would like to social science to explain some good things happening. <laughs> it just feels right. like lately That's it's right. just been bleak. This is true. Oh. All right, we should transition. Okay, so uh, we wanted to spend a few minutes today revisiting Trump's legal world when it turns out to be timely that we did. Um, yeah. In many ways, it's been a busy couple of weeks for Trump. Um, about two weeks ago, Trump's civil fraud case in New York came to a conclusion. Uh, Trump was found to have repeatedly overvalued his net worth in order to secure favorable loan terms. That's what we call fraud. Um, <laughs> the, the judge handed down a massive penalty of over $350 million plus interest. Um, when you take that and add it to the recent $83 million penalty in the E. Jean, e. Jean Carroll defamation case, Trump now owes well over half a billion dollars in civil pen penalties, an amount that uh, seems to be that everyone agrees exceeds the amount of cash he has available. Um, it's unclear how Trump plans to handle this issue, but he has already started fundraising in order to help cover some of those expenses. Um, it, it is worth 
worth noting that having a leading presidential candidate desperate for money creates a serious ethical dilemma and leaves Trump compromised in really problematic ways, which is a point that Abdullah Fayyad made for Vox last week. I put, we can talk about that in a little bit. I put that yeah. article up on the webpage as well. Um, on the other hand, it's been a slow week in Trump's legal world. And as, when I wrote this this afternoon, we had yet to receive any sort of decision in two massively important cases uh, before the Supreme Court. Um, his appeal uh, uh, of the decision in his immunity case um, we had talked, it, it, initial briefings had been heard, but, but we hadn't heard anything else. Now that we know they're taking it up, that's likely to, uh, uh, I mean, whatever they, whatever they rule, whether they, you know, whichever direction they go in that, um, it's going to push the January 6th trial back and that's going to have consequences for a November election. Um, even more pressing, arguably the court has yet to issue a decision regarding whether Trump can be removed from the ballot in Colorado. That case was heard at the beginning of the month, and most people thought a quick decision was expected because, guess what? The Colorado primary is on Tuesday, and we still don't have a ruling about whether <laughs> Trump is, is eligible to run for office. And so we're still waiting. So, Bill, all of these, the civil the civil one, but the, the other two are both, are they're all fascinating cases. Um, the, the two Supreme Court ones are, are, are dealing with issues never before addressed in constitutional law, the ramifications are massive in both of those. Uh, which of these multiple cases do you want to dig into first? Well, I think I, we probably have to talk about the, the the civil fraud one. Just that, just that number. And you sent me that article talking about the ways in which a presidential candidate or a president could be compromised by owing that much money, and it really it frightened me because I hadn't thought about that. But it's absolutely in a normal political world. If a presidential candidate was found guilty of fraud and sexual assault, that would be the end of their career, right? They wouldn't, we wouldn't even have to think about the money. But then, then we've got to start thinking about the money. And it, it really is, it is a significant factor to think about. Can, you know, how is Trump has to worry about paying all of that? Yeah. Um, and so that is going to be his focus of attention. And there are lots of nefarious ways that that could influence negatively our political system. So I'm just, I'm worried about that, Phil. I'm still thinking about this whole immunity case that the Supreme Court is, I, I still can't, you know, fathom that they want to engage in this conversation. Um, you know, the, the one thing, the case I'm maybe least worried about is the uh, getting kicked off the ballot, the Colorado case, because he is technically on the ballot now in Colorado. So I think it's bad form for the Supreme Court not to decide that before Super Tuesday. I think they're the democracy would benefit from some clarity on that issue. But the reality is it's not a, it's not a huge issue. So like, you know, they're, they're going to say that he's going to stay on the ballot. So I'm less worried about that. But I'm more worried about the potential for, you know, <laughs> the money and, and all of that compression. But also the idea that now we're, we're going to have to spend some time thinking about listening to oral arguments about whether the president of the United States is immune from criminal liability. I, I, don't, I, I don't know, Phil. I don't know what to think about all this. I'm, I'm off guard. I'm, I'm, I'm speechless. This doesn't happen very well. It's it's no. it's interesting to have the news break while we're recording to to because yeah. neither one of us have, we're sort of processing it in real time. Uh, so let's talk about the civil case for a second and then yeah, come back around yeah. to the to the uh, to the uh, immunity one. I, yeah, the, I think the you know to sort of frame it for for listeners I, for, to have someone owing five hundred million dollars. This is uh, we, we have rules in place that guard what a president can and can't do precisely because you don't want a president with conflict conflicts of interest, right? You don't want a president to be able to be bought off by uh, you know, a, a, co a corporation or a foreign government or whatever. Um, now, it is also worth noting that Trump ignored many, if not all of <laughs> those true. while he yeah. was president. He should. And again, there should have been, you know, there should have been repercussions for that. Again, like in, in a sane world, uh, any number <laughs> of these things would mean that Trump was out of the question um, to ever be president again. But here we are, he's running for office and, and those same rules don't exist, uh, for a, for a candidate for president. So this is the same, this is a situation where he can't use campaign funds to oh. pay this, but if Saudi Arabia comes along and says, Hey, we want to do a, a, a business deal with you and we'll give you $500 million in cash. And, and, you know, we'll call in that favor in the future. They can do that. Like this should worry everyone that yeah. a president is owing $500 million that he does not have. And he needs to come up with that money. It, this is 
is the sort of thing that if if you were in a situation far smaller than that, I mean, these are someone who is in debt uh, in significant ways doesn't get clear security clearance because of the ways in which they can be compromised and that debt can be used against them. And so here we are, we're about to make the, uh, we're about to, we might very well elect a man who has $500 million in in debt that he has. It really is, it's, it's, it is something we should all worry about. And it's remarkable to me that these are the sorts of things that, uh, you know, uh, potentially half of the country doesn't see a problem with I just again the conservative party which is all about you know in my whole life you know again growing up I've talked about this before in a republican household like moral values and and like the rule of law and all these things that were supposed (laughs) to be the center of the republican party just gone your your point about security clearance is such a good one right because there's no way Trump would get a security clearance short of being president of the United States because people probably forget this one. Jared Kushner was not given a security clearance until Trump said, give it to him. Right. I mean, the 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 intelligence agencies looked at that and said, no way are we giving this guy a security clearance. He has all sorts of red flags going off and it would be the exact same, even worse for Donald Trump. So the only way somebody like Donald Trump can get access to secret intelligence and all those other things is because he is president. Otherwise, wouldn't happen. Right. Um, and that again, that should be bells and whistles going off for the American public. But it does. Those things don't matter. Um, it, it's really, really disappointing. It sort of speaks to the world we're in, where that that reality of being half a billion dollars in debt is not not worrying to a huge chunk of the country. Luckily, we know that he if he's given security clearance, will handle the the, <laughs> the right. information he comes into contact with uh, according to all the necessary protocols. <laughs> but I mean, we have a precedent for this, right? Jared Kushner, again, to go back to him, I think it was with the Saudi wealth fund. It was a two billion he got. I mean, it was some mm-hmm. ridiculous amount, um, you know, and Jared Kushner's giving lectures about how he's such a good business person. Well, you know, like it helps when the Saudi. I could be pretty good at business if, if the Saudis gave me two billion. So, um, yeah, it is. It, it is really interesting. It, I mean, this is a repercussion of to, to talk about whether we talk about it as like Christian nationalism or white nationalism or just this sort of identity based politics that we're living in this this uh, the, the kind of I don't know, whatever the, the persecution complex or whatever that's going on. When you start thinking in this sort of us versus them, good versus bad, then like the person on your side who is fraudulent and you know corrupted and all of these other things is still better than the person on the other side who's just evil right and that's where we've gotten to where like people are are abandoning all of their principles to sort support Donald Trump simply because he's not a democrat or it it, it really i mean it's it's more than that right because he continues to sweep through the primaries it's not just that they don't like it's no longer that they just don't like uh, Joe Biden it's that they they love Donald Trump for it's it's something about it. It, it is the corruption. I, I I don't it's I don't it's such a, a puzzle to me. I it's I don't understand it. It it, it is. I, I so I'm, try, I'm just trying to step back and think a little bit about where we are given this new news. But the reality is that so the Supreme Court is likely to to say that Colorado doesn't have the right to overturn or I'm sorry to kick Trump off the ballot. There's going to be at least a conversation, and I'm guessing a number of justices, even if they don't win, that are going to say the president has immunity. Um, you know, the 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 case in Washington D.C., the federal case charging Trump with overturning the election, is likely now to not be heard prior to the November election, right? I mean, we think about all these pieces falling into place. This is not a good legal day, Phil. This is sort of a, it is, you know, yeah, we will see. But it's, I shouldn't say, it's possible that the Jack Smith case in D.C. about the overturning the election is possible to get done. But I know this has got to be a huge blow for any sort of timeline on that front. So let's dig it. I mean, so we'll do yeah. our disclaimer, which is that we're processing this in real time. So this is <laughs> yes, pure yes. speculation on our part, but it's kind of fun to talk through it. Like, what, so what could possibly, trying to put myself in it, because we don't know who the justices are. We don't know how many justices, want, we know that at least four yeah. wanted to hear this case. Um, but uh, like, what could, is there any positive, the obvious go-to is there are conservative justices who have a problem with this really, really well-reasoned, well-argued legal decision at a lower level, and they want to tear that apart, and they're going to allow Donald Trump to have some sort of immunity. But maybe there are, are there, is there any way in which the court taking this up 
can be interpreted more benevolently. Like they feel like there's, there's nuance to it. It's not that it's just, you're all, you're, they want to, they want to work through the details of what a, a president can be prosecuted for and cannot be prosecuted for. Is it, is it that they think this is such an important decision that it should come from the Supreme court and not from a lower court? Like it, it, it helped me feel better about what's about yeah. to happen with the Supreme well, court. The last thing you're right, we don't know yet, but now we will, I'm assuming they have oral arguments and follow the normal procedures. I'm guessing we'll see more of that then. It, that may be the case. It may be that the Supreme court wants the definitive voice, right? So if, if the Supreme Court just lets the appellate court stand, then they have not weighed in on it. And there still is some some ambiguity about where the court is, or they at least have not given a decision. And maybe that's motivating some of them to say that this is important. We should grapple with it. And timing is not as relevant as the, as the broader issue. So we want to do that. It is also possible that they see some nuance that the appellate court didn't see. Um, and, and, you know, the, the lawyers for Trump really made the argument that this could lead to an abuse of going after presidents and finding them criminally guilty for for their actions in office. Now, the reality is this has never happened. Donald Trump is the first. So there is no precedent of this being a major problem. This is a theme we come back to over and over and over again. Oftentimes, courts are saying, well, you know, if this happens to Trump, it could happen to anyone. Well, you know, no, I think Trump is a, is a unique variable, and I don't know if we can replicate it after that. But but so maybe, maybe the court is trying to put its stamp on this to say definitively the president isn't immune. I don't think they need it to, but that may, be, that may be one interpretation that could make you feel a little bit better, that they just want to reaffirm what the appellate court had said. So that's maybe that's what we have to hope, hope for. Are, are there five justices who would go so far as to say that a president is not criminally responsible for things they do while in office? I like I, I can't I, when I start thinking about it, obviously, you've got, you know, the Clarence Thomases and, and the, you know, the the um, uh, the Alitos and whatnot. You've got uh, you've got the sort of diehards that um, that I, I wouldn't be shocked to hear them do something. But it's hard for me, like even, you know, the, the even the Kavanaugh's and the Roberts. So it's hard for me to see them or, the you know, yeah. Gorsuch, maybe more than Kavanaugh actually coming down and saying that, yeah, uh, this is, you know, a president can't be charged for insurrection or whatever, because I, I just it's hard, like even from a from a. Uh, originalist perspective, it's hard to see how how any conservative gets to that because these are not again, we've seen over and over that it might be a conservative court, but it's not a Trump Trumpian conservative court, right? right? right. It, it is a conservative court of the, you know, of, of a um I don't know, like a, a traditional conservative um, uh, view of things, a small government, that sort of thing. And that that's different from uh, a person being able to be right. sort of uh, free from judgment. And so I, when I think about it that way, I think... I don't know. This, this should be a, a unanimous decision from the Supreme court. I sort of speculate it won't be. Um, but I I can't, it's again, I can't bring myself around to even, even with a conservative court, them, uh, saying that a president is immune from prosecution. I agree too. And I think the most important thing you said there was that the court has drawn a distinction between Trump's policies, right? Which they are sympathetic to, right? The legal interpretations, they have been very, very supportive of, of a conservative understanding of those issues, but they have not been supportive of Trump himself. And his, when, you know, think about the 2020 overturn election, all of those legal, the court systems were very clear in rejecting those. Uh, and I assumed this would follow that pathway. If, if the court is entertaining the idea that the president can be immune from criminal charges, then it raises the question, would they also entertain the idea that he can self-pardon? And again, mm -hmm. we, are, we are speculating in real time, and so there, yeah. there are probably legal analysts who might have a better understanding of why the court wants to do this. But but I will say all the legal experts beforehand were saying that this this was such this was tied up in such a nice little yep. bowl. They all expected that the Supreme Court would turn it, it down passed. because it saved them the political problem, right? Now they have to weigh in on Donald Trump both about the Colorado ballot and this immunity case, but it's it's something they are choosing to take on. Hmm. Maybe they're doing it. Maybe it's a knowing that the, I, there were also people who talked about after the Colorado decision, the two sort of were kind of bookends yes. in some ways and that the yeah. color, they can say that you, you can't be removed from the ballot, but you, you're also not immune from prosecution. Maybe this is their way of they'll be able to release both decisions in the same day and it will it'll take some of the the burn out of the 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 uh, the rejection of Colorado of the Colorado suit. 
Absolutely. Again, more to come. It'll be fascinating. So, well, should we transition and talk a little bit about Ukraine? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So this last week marked the second anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So as Russia invasion enters now its third year, we thought it'd be useful to step back and offer some thoughts on the state of the conflict and what might come next. Uh, To many on the ground, the battle appears a lot like a stalemate in which neither side is able to make dramatic uh, advances. Ukraine's hope for a summer counteroffensive proved overly optimistic, uh, and they now find themselves trying to hold on to territory as Russia carries out its own counteroffensive. On the diplomatic front, neither side looks open to negotiations at the current moment. At the global level, we're seeing the ways in which the conflict is being caught up in the geopolitical struggle between China and the United States. On the domestic front, uh, the Ukraine war has become a partisan issue where $60 billion in aid for Ukraine has been held up by the House Republicans, led by new House Speaker Mike Johnson. Uh, This has left many in Europe wondering whether they can count on the United States and whether they need to prepare to go it alone. Uh, Phil, a lot of stuff to work through here. What's your sense of of what we should make and where the conflict is at, at year two? I think I think the place to start is I, my my tendency is to agree that I mean this has turned into a, a, even if you don't want to call it a stalemate, it's hard to imagine a year from now this being resolved in any sort of way. Like this is not a war that is going anywhere. Um, it is it, it is you know on the fronts bogged down, but sort of it's kind of literally bogged down in 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 general. Um, and that yeah. I don't see any way to break through. And and. I think both sides have reasons for uh, being unwilling to budge or to negotiate or to compromise right now. Um, I think, you know, Vladimir Putin is, uh, I think it's been known for a while that he's he's planning to wait it out. He thinks that the the West um, isn't going to sort of hold together in support of, of Ukraine. And and if Ukraine doesn't get continued aid, then he can actually eke out some sort of a victory here. And I don't think he's wrong. I think that, I mean, as you said, the, the U.S. can't bring itself to actually provide aid to Ukraine. I, the, you know, the, that's, I mean, this is Mitch McConnell, but he cited this specifically as, as part of the reason why he's yeah. stepping down. There's this weird kind of PR campaign going on. We didn't talk about uh, Tucker Carlson going to Russia and talking right. about how wonderful things are in Russia and how cheap the food is. It just oh, grocery stores are great in Moscow. Yeah, God. but uh, I think I think Vladimir Putin's right to sort of wait it wait it out. But I also it's understandable why Ukraine isn't going to say, yeah, we'll negotiate an end to this um, uh, and give up territory that's rightfully ours. And so um, I, I don't see either side being willing to settle right now. But I don't see either side being able to break through either. And so I think we're in for another long kind of stalemate of a, of a you know, talking about a year. But I, at the rate this is going, this is, you know, years of of this playing out. Um, the other part I think about in, in like general um, sort of geopolitical terms is, is uh the the extent to which like this really is a test case for American leadership and like it feels like this is such an easy win for the United States uh, providing aid to uh, we've talked about right like Russia and and the rise of China and the the sort of bond between the two and and Russia like you can defeat Russia without having to you know dedicate a single American life to it right just by by putting money towards it um, and and establish like in doing so reestablish establish American leadership, reestablish, reinvigorate NATO, which is now adding members. Um, and we're just like fumbling the ball needlessly. Like we, this is, and it, and it is something that we, we talk about, like how hard it was to recover or is to recover from Trump's era as president when he stepped away from NATO and was critical of NATO and all of that other stuff. And, and this is like, you know, Trump's not president right now. This is just a Republican party that that's doing this at his, you know, urging right. to some yeah, extent, yeah. but um, you know, if, if this will be seen as uh, America is not a credible um, ally, right. That the things that America says they will do when push comes to shove, they're not going to do it. And that's going to have implications for Chinese policy towards Taiwan, Russia, you know, Iran, like all throughout the Middle East, all over the world. And, and, you know, I, the side benefit is that maybe, maybe Europe does sort of, you know, come together in a way, but, but it, you know, if, if you're betting on, uh, you know, whether, which can last longer, Vladimir Putin throwing Russian lives at Ukraine or Europe sort of coming together and agreeing on something, it feels like Vladimir Putin's going to be able to throw people at this longer than Europe can hold this coalition together unless something 
changes a little bit. That's, that's another sort of bleak way of looking at it. But, um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I still, I think, I think that, uh, again, it's just frustrating to watch America have this opportunity that, that is a golden opportunity in many different ways and, and to see it somehow lose out to Tucker Carlson's PR trip through, through Russia. It it is a fundamental test case of American leadership. And, and there are times where U.S. foreign endeavors are complicated. Afghanistan, toward the end, was a complicated endeavor. It wasn't clear what the right choice there. Do you stay? Is it time to get out? Those are hard choices. Ukraine is a much easier choice, right? This is a, an aggressive act by a longstanding enemy that, as you noted, this is just, a, I think this is a really good military investment for the United States because the cost is relatively low. You're doing significant damage to, to Russia in the long term, both economically and militarily, all of that. Um, and, and we'll see whether the Congress, my guess is that eventually they will get to it, um, but it, it just doesn't look good. And, and ultimately, this the next measure will be the presidential election, right? So, you know, if Trump's reelected, I think you're you're looking at Ukraine being cut off and, and the United States reevaluating its, its position in NATO. Those are all really terrible things if you believe that the United States has a, an important role to play in the world. The other thing I think is sort of interesting is there's a narrative out there right now that that the momentum is on Russia's side. And I think there's there's some evidence to support that. It looks like a stalemate, but Russia has been able to take a couple key cities lately and they're not making dramatic increasing, but they're but they're moving. And as you said, Putin is going to continue to throw soldiers in the meat grinder. I still think this is a losing war for Putin. I don't see any way in which he ultimately gets his goal of regime change in Ukraine. So if if the West can get its act together long term, long term being over the next couple of years, this is a disaster for Vladimir Putin, right? This is this is Vietnam. This is Afghanistan. This is all of the bad conflicts that we know that eventually, you know, bleed the bigger power to you know having to retreat. So, I mean, I think that's the other reason why this makes so much sense for the United States to continue to fund Ukraine, because long term, I mean, you know, the sanctions in the short term have not proved quite as effective but sanctions take a long time. Yep. You know, they're they're slow working. They don't they don't happen overnight. But there's no doubt that, you know, the the Russian economy is missing some of the high tech infrastructure that it needs. And so again, I, I think for all those reasons, it makes a lot of sense. And and uh, yeah, so so I hope that Republican lawmakers start to kind of realize the the incentive structure here. Yeah, I think you're right. I, one of the articles there's a, I put an article from Foreign Affairs and one from Foreign Policy up that that listeners can can read. I, I forget which one, but one of them talks specifically about sanctions and about the ways in which, yeah. like, it, two years in, it's just now starting to really, you know. It, if you if you're if you're limiting access to technological supplies and whatnot, um, you have you know backups and supplies that that have to run out. So it's just now like the the equipment, the technology they need for repairing aircraft and keeping you know their energy grid uh, running is is they're just now starting to experience some of that pain. And so um, yeah, in some ways you know all of this the last two years to abandon it now is is uh, you're abandoning it at a point that that you're starting to see, uh, actually an impact. Um, and yeah, the other thing is, you know, that was another, I may have been the same article talking about like the, all the, the sort of criticism and, uh, you know, hullabaloo, that's a good, a good term to throw about, about, um, the, the, the botched, you know, end to Afghanistan and how that was uh, a blow to American credibility that this, this, you know, dwarfs that to, yes, to such yes. an extent. Like this is, a, again, I mean, this is the, a foundational commitment of post-World War II American foreign policy to to NATO and to NATO allies and to Europe and and, and all of that. And, and it's largely worked, right? We've had a, a peaceful yeah. 75 years in Europe until... Uh, until uh, until now. And and there's a difference between having a conversation about whether or not America should commit to more things moving forward or commit to fewer things moving forward. There's a difference between that and not honoring the commitments you've already made. And this is a a situation that feels like not honoring commitments that we've already made. Again, Ukraine's not part of NATO, but but our our um, our NATO allies, right, are sort of unified in this. They're the ones who are on the front lines of this uh, war. And 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 to to in the midst of this, the first real threat to European security in in 75 years to be talking about how you're on your own and we're going to step back from NATO and we're not going to support the the good guys, the democracy in this situation. <laughs> right. It's just it's yeah, I, I don't know how I don't know how anybody trusts sort of American commitments moving forward. 
That, that's right. I mean, it, it becomes America first and then that's it. Right. And, and I don't think that's not a good way to be a glo- global hegemon. Right. If you, if you want to structure the system to your interest and to regulate it, I mean, you're, you're going to be ceding a lot of global legitimacy to China in the process, which which the world doesn't want. And I don't think the United States wants. So, yeah. We got to talk about ice cream, Phil. Should we? I, we could spend a lot of time talking about Ukraine, but we probably need to get to ice cream. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. we're going to wrap up today with a story that we here at the Politics Lab feel is simply not getting enough attention. Amidst all the global turmoil in Ukraine and Gaza, amidst an election season that may determine the future of democracy in America, amidst ongoing criminal and civil investigations into a former president, and amidst a global attack on democracy that includes increasing restrictions on the rights of a wide variety of groups in the U.S. It's easy to forget that Joe Biden likes ice cream. But luckily, (laughs) luckily, Fox News is serving as our moral compass and isn't letting this moral abomination pass us by without notice. Uh, So Jesse Waters is one such great patriot. And I I have the audio here. Here's here's what he had to say about it this week. Ice cream, you know, my rule about men eating soup in public. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's manly to go like that with a soup and you're blowing on it. It's just not a good look. I think the same thing for ice cream. You should save that for vacation. Mm. A grown man, especially the president, should not be licking ice cream Mm. in public. So uh, th- that's Jesse Waters who opens the d- the discussion. But but as always, Janine Pirro, who's just I mean, if there is a rational, you know, uh, a rational uh, sort of <laughs> moral pragmatist out there, Janine Pirro is it. Uh, she was even more blunt and to the point in her defense of moral decency. As the world is burning, Joe Biden is licking his ice cream, and it's pathetic. <laughs> so, so Bill. So good. <laughs> Where does Joe Biden's love of ice cream fit in the great list of moral outrages in the world today? Oh, it's so outrageous, right? (laughs) You know, this reminded me so much. Some of our listeners may be too young to remember this, but during the Obama administration, there was one time when he came out in a tan suit for a press conference and the the conservative world, Fox News, lost their mind, right? And I'm telling you, go Google tan suit gate, right? And you will see this, you know, days of how unprofessional and how weak Obama looked. This feels very much like that, you know, I mean... I, you and I, we like ice cream. I'm I'm a big so custard good. fan. Oh, because you know custard's even less healthy than ice cream, and it tastes <laughs> you know even more creamy. So I, I don't begrudge Joe Biden uh, having some ice cream. Now I will say it was a little cavalier. He's licking his ice cream, and then he made some comment about the progress of the ceasefire in Israel. So <laughs> it was a, you know the contrast there. He might have just sort of set that aside, and it was more. You know, Joe loves, you know, sneaking out a little secret here or there. But no, if he wants to eat ice cream and it makes him happy, I'm all for it. And and this faux outrage doesn't bother me one bit. Let the man eat his ice cream. How about you? Are you are you judging him or not judging him? What do you think? No, I, I would judge him if he didn't eat ice cream. I, it's yes. just, like you say, it's just so good. And so, yeah, I mean, this is... It, <laughs> I, I mean, it, it is uh, to be, I mean, I, in reality, it's like a humanizing thing, right? Like it's like a relatable thing. It's, it's this really, <laughs> I, who doesn't like an ice cream cone? It is sort of childlike that he's always got yes. in all the pictures, like a, a cone of ice cream that he's enjoying. But yeah, no, I mean, this is, uh, <laughs> I thought of the tan suit thing too, uh, when I, when I first came across this, but th- really to step back from it all, it's one thing to say, like, it's dumb that, that, that uh, Fox news is like making a, a deal out of Joe Biden and liking ice cream, but it's really in the grand scheme of things, right? It's, it is the side by side, Joe Biden eats ice cream and that's not presidential, but we support a guy who owes half a billion dollars in, in in fraud settlements and is (laughs) facing 91 criminal indictments for (laughs) mishandling of documents and all these other things like that guy's okay, but how dare you eat ice cream? Like it is just, it is unbelievable. And it's unbelievable that that is somehow worse that that's an effective approach to, I mean, Fox News has it figured out. It's interesting. I You wonder, like, did Jesse Walters realize the disconnect when he can go after Joe Biden from eating ice cream, but not have a problem with, with Donald Trump, you know, paying off porn stars and, and like you said, owing $500 million and, and trying to overturn election. I, I wonder if there's a... There must be a level of cognitive dissonance where, like, you don't see the difference, right? You don't, you don't see the one candidate. All you see is Joe Biden licking ice cream, and it just makes you so mad that yeah. that he's happy and he's eating his ice cream. My favorite from that scene was before Joe Biden actually gets his cone. 
like he's leaning over this high counter trying to look <laughs> at the people with the ice cream and it's sort of cute and uh, but he really he really he, he would be good on the podcast because he would like ice cream at the same level you and I like ice that's cream. That's true. That's true. Yeah. The cognitive dissonance thing is a perfect way of I was just talking about cognitive dissonance in my class yesterday about, yeah. you know, the ways in which we we so that, you know, the basic ideas, we don't like uh, contradictory ideas in our brain. And so we we, we fi- have to find ways to make sense of them. And I, it feels like th- this is where the, the way it works for people is that, you know, you don't like Joe Biden. You do. You want to like Donald Trump. And so how do you do this? You, you can you can hold the thought that Joe Biden eats ice cream and that's unpresidential in your mind. Well, how do you make sense of all the other stuff? It's you buy into Donald Trump's lies about how it's it, he's being targeted, right? It's the government that it doesn't want him to win. And that's why he's being charged with fraud and all these other yeah. things. And that's how you can make peace and sleep at night is to, to believe that everything against Donald Trump is, is a false accusation. But, but Joe Biden, we know he eats ice cream. We've seen it. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> it is interesting you know, to change this up just a little bit. Like it, it seems like the, oh, the Biden campaign is being intentional about getting him out there. Yeah. Um, you know, last, so he was on Seth Myers. Yep. He, he was doing the dark Brandon thing with the glasses. He was getting ice cream. Um, you know, in his events, he's been cracking more jokes. I think they're they're trying to put him in ways that makes him more human, a little bit younger, a little bit more dynamic. Uh, they are aware that the the power of that critique that Joe Biden is too old, and they are. I think they're doing a nice job of of humanizing. I mean, obviously he's a human, but sort of showing that that active side. Uh, and I think this was all part of that. You know, go have some ice yep. cream, make some jokes. Uh, you know, talk about the, the Israeli ceasefire potentially. All of that right. is part of the campaign strategy. <laughs> I think you're right. I think it's I think it's wise, and I think it'll probably be somewhat effective in that. Even if yeah. you know he, you can't change his age, but you can combat the narrative that he's lost it, right? And so if you make right. him seem likable, and he can off the cuff talk about some of this stuff, you combat the notion that that uh, he's in some way you know not capable because he's senile. That's right. Yeah, good strategy. Well, this is probably a good place to wrap up. We've talked about all these articles, Phil. Remind the listeners how to stay connected and get access to that stuff. Yeah, so thepoliticslab.com. Click on this week's episode. I've got uh, the, the uh, Filipovich article that Bill and I were talking about is there. Um, a couple of, there's an Atlantic article. There's a couple of, a number of articles about um, the, oh, referencing the, the Missouri uh, law that Bill was talking about. All those articles are there. Um, the foreign policy and foreign affairs pieces on Ukraine are there. Um, a number of articles about uh, Donald Trump's um, legal issues, including the one about uh, the, the, the ethical dilemmas of having a compromised presidential campaign. All of those available for, for uh, easy access. Just go to thepoliticslab.com and, and all the clickable links are there. That's fantastic. All right, Phil, I'll see you next week unless you decide to take another impromptu t- uh, trip to Texas. You never know. You, you never uh, know, Bill. All right, bye, Phil. <laughs> bye, Bill. <laughs>